is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we continue our reading of Critique of the Gotha program with special guest Constance. fun little uh, quote you can get uh, from the Marx Engels uh, correspondence. This is just Marx, you know, that Marx, Marx and Engels, 15th of August, 1863. Quote, The enclosed photographs the children forced me to have mine taken will soon be followed by those of Jenny and Laura. In one respect, my work, preparing the manuscript for the press, is going well, and the final elaboration in the stuff is, I think, as, assuming a to- tolerably popular form, aside from a few unavoidable MCs and CMs. On the other hand, despite the fact that I write all day long, it's not getting on as fast as my own impatience, long subjected to a trial of, of patience, might demand. At all events, it will be 100 p- PC more comprehensible than number one, which is it's a, not a reference. So. When, by, by the by, I consider my handiwork and realize how I've had to demolish everything and even build up the historical section out of what was in part quite unknown material, I can't help finding Izzy, which is a nickname for LaSalle, a bit of a joke, for he he has already got his political economy in hand, and yet everything he has peddled around hitherto has shown him to be a callow schoolboy who trumpets abroad as his very latest discovery with the most repulsive and impertinent garrulity Thesis which were which we were doling out twenty years ago as small change to our partisans and ten times better at that. In other respects too, the same Issy storing up in his manure factory our party feces excreted twenty years ago, which he proposed to use as fertilizer for world history. Thus, for it, for instance, he's got the Nordstern to print a letter of support to Harwick, who has undoubtedly given proof of his platonic love for the principle of labor. Because the same Northern is edited by the Nord like Brone, who LaSalle brought bought from Blind. Thus Izzy has nominated Moses Hess, his proconsul in the Ryan province, etc. And he still seems unable to shake off the idée fix that his praises should be sung by Farlight, who would never dream of doing so, for he has again got his life proconsul to summon F urgently, citing the good example of George Ray. If only he knew how F and I had lost about his renewed onslaught. Oh, Izzy, oh, Izzy, didst thou not see the Harwag and Moses thy gull would be? Yeah. <laughs> so wait, you're, you're saying that he called them Izzy? Sorry, maybe I zoomed in on the wrong thing here, but Izzy, that's the, that's his pet name. <laughs> yeah, right? uh, it, yeah, which might be uh, one of the more politically correct pet names uh, Marx has for LaSalle, but... Ah, <laughs> uh, fair point, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's cooler gamer moments. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay, but look, look, I'm not saying that Marx isn't kind of like, you know, very rude when talking about LaSalle, but also there's an aspect to it where like, when you understand the context, it's kind of like, he's kind of like making fun of like, um, the fact like LaSalle is like LARPing as like a German nationalist. So it's a bit like, you know, you know, 
I am conquistador 1488. And then you look at like, oh, it's, 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 it's just like so, so, some, you know, swarty Latino just being a white supremacist or something. It, it kind of has that vibe. Oh, like how, uh, or, or like and, how uh, Stalin is a Georgian and crushes like the Georgian nationalist movement. Or like, uh, well, I guess uh, Fran- I learned recently Franco is like Galician and then crushes that like separatist movement. Like, I don't know. There's like a self-hating thing when it comes to these. I, I mean, uh, it's, not, it's not even exactly self. It's like it's it's self-hating, but also like when he was younger, Lasalle basically almost kind of was Moses has pilled before <clears throat> Moses has had turned to Zionist on like the need for a Jewish state. <laughs> so, and then he shifts to like, basically like, Oh, the Jews are such fucking parasites, useless. They can't even defend themselves against pogroms or like, and just like leans into the Hegelian, you know, Bowerian, like anti-Semitism, where like, Oh, we're, we're basically for he, for Hegel, like, um, the Orient is like stagnation and the Jews are sort of like, you know, an offshoot of the Orient. And, and then when you read like someone like Hess, you kind of, you see him kind of being like, well, but not exactly because, you know, since they're wanderers and they don't have a specific like national home, they're kind of like, they're kind of free and are, are kind of like, you know, they can be, uh, they can be part of, you know, the sort of movement toward enlightenment and it's no coincidence that a lot of uh, people like Hess are big into Spinoza. That's their model. His first book is like, um, has a dedication to, to Spinoza where it's like, you know, from a young disciple of Spinoza. Yeah. I mean, it's good to know he was a Jewish enlightenment pill. So what you're saying is that, um, LaSalle thinks I should fill out Asian on the census, and Hess thinks I should fill out other. <laughs> All right, I got it. <laughs> uh, so, I, so this is um, this ramps up into our reading of Critique of the Gothic Program, our close reading, where we put our face really close to the screen and start getting literal myopia, not the figurative kind. Where you have, you know, figurative tunnel vision, the literal kind, where your eyes get glued to the screen. And, um, well, let's see, we were in, I think we were, so we were in the proper critique. Um, we got through some letters, we got through the actual program. Now we're in the second section. Lovely version edited by Peter Hudis. Is it Hudis? Because, you know, Hudis reminds I, me I of the meme. Don't ask me how to pronounce it. All right, so. all right, all right. I don't know. Peter, if you're listening, you know, who dis? Um, and <laughs> fuck. Yeah, who who dis? If you're listening, yeah. If you're listening, just go, go to my Instagram page and like DM me. I've I've got some like nice things to to you know to feed you about uh, some of the things that um, what's his name? Oh fuck, yeah. I forgot. What, what what's his name? Fuck. What, why am I misremembering? Oh, Lars Lee said about you. Oh, uh, like nice. Well, Look, Very nice. Look, look, Mr. Hudis, if you're listening, we can acknowledge that you've made some mistakes, but let, let's... You're one of the treasures, all right? D- d- like... d- look, d- 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 these aren't essential, and I, I I can show you the way. I can show you the way. 
<laughs> if you want to stop by my Instagram, you can see me rolling balls at my birthday. And, like, I'm, I'm looking hot, but I'm, like, I'm so hot. Anyway, um. New translation, who dis? New translation, who dis? Thank you, Jake. So, uh, and as, like all the sections, it starts from a quote from the Gotha program. Quotes. Starting from these basic principles, the German Workers' Party strives by all legal means for the free state and the socialist society. The abolition of the wage system together with the iron law of wages and exploitation in every form. The elimination of all social and political inequality. I shall return to the free state later, Marx starts. So, in future... The German Workers' Party has got to believe in LaSalle's iron law of wages. That this may not be lost, the nonsense is perpetrated of speaking of the abolition of the wage system. It should read system of wage labor, together with the iron law of wages. If I abolish wage labor, then naturally I abolish its laws also, whether they are of iron or spun. But LaSalle's attack on wage labor turns almost solely on this so-called law. In order, therefore, to prove that LaSalle's sect has conquered, the wage system must be abolished together with the iron law of wages and not without it. It is well known that nothing of the iron law of wages is LaSalle's except for the word iron, borrowed from Goethe's great eternal iron laws. The word iron is his sign by which the true believers recognize one another. But if I take the law with LaSalle's stamp on it, and consequently in his sense, then I must also take it with his explanation. And what is that? As Lange has already showed, shortly after LaSalle's death, it is the Malthusian theory of population preached by Lange himself. But if this theory is correct, then again, I cannot abolish the law even if I abolish wage labor a hundred times over, because the law then governs not only the system of wage labor, but every social system. Basing themselves directly on this, the economists have been proving for 50 years and more that socialists cannot abolish poverty, which has its basis in nature, but can only make it general, distributing it simultaneously over the whole surface of society. And, uh, you know, I would personally add, Anybody that generalizes the law of value to other uh, social systems, and specifically to every social system, and, you know, this is something that you get from Kautskias and Stalinists and value, like, value theory influencers on Twitter. Um, yeah, where like the, the, there's, like, the conflation of, like, labor time with value, and then also of, like, there's... This also like touches on like, you know, there's like this this trope of like um, of like anti angles um anglesism that just does veer off a lot depending on like who you're reading. But one of the 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 very like uh, provable ways in which like uh, angles kind of like um, obscures what Marx is trying to get at in Capital is uh, his like infamous like reading of like um, of like chapter of like chapter one of Capital being like historical and also him like 
because he's responding to like critiques of uh, ca- of, of capital, he integrates in volume three a sort of like appendix explaining um, s- some how like volume two volume three can relate to like volume one, and then he kind of like he ca- he, he comes up with like uh, an explanation of like historically like simple commodity production and. There's a lot of, there's so much like confusion that goes on there. And also you can kind of tell, um, now we can obviously tell now with the manuscripts of volume three where Engels kind of like inserts his own reading from like that appendix into the, the text of volume three itself. And so it gives it like kind of like a kind of continuity or like legitimacy, but it's, it's just, it, it doesn't work. It's quite, it's quite um, obvious especially when you take in um, the sort of like appropriation of a, of a Hegel that uh, Marx does, especially in that first chapter, that it, it can't be strictly historical. It's more of like, it's, it's not even necessarily like a deduction. It's sort of like, okay, you start out with the commodity as the very simple, like, you know, element in the system that like blossoms into like, into everything he describes in like all of his writings but then it kind of like loops back around to itself. So the commodity form being the the starting point and end point of like the capitalist uh, system and sort of like the all the chains, the serial chains of MCM, CMC, all goes back to the basic wage labor uh, problem. Right. Well, he's he's abstracting in order to basically develop a model by which to understand the relationships that underpin these systems, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I don't know. I do think like stuff in three loops back to one. Like, and I, it, I think, it it does it does loop back, but it's like, it doesn't like loop back into sort of a. It's not simple, a closed system. It's it doesn't loop back to the simple commodity production sort of like view that historical view that like Mar- that Engels kind of. Uh, attaches Mm -hmm. then subsequently uh this is the reading that like kowski bernstein and everybody else takes up until way later where they kind of like actually if i remember correctly i think uh carl korsh uh, without having you know the manuscript proofs kind of like deduces like something's going on volume three like maybe uh ingles is kind of uh it's kind of like riffing a bit and he he kind of veers off and apparently yeah seems he was correct in that assumption because one one of the things with like marx right so there's a big chunk of like of capital is like from the commodity form to like machinery the machinery chapter and like what he describes like the dialectical like inversion of um what happens when the relative surplus uh, value extraction like takes hold in a society and the sort of like general devaluing of like uh of labor and ties it to like how like children, women and children are now like thrown on the market because of that, because the sort of, uh, the, the sort of, uh, pet, sort of like petty producer, um, stage where like, you know, this big burly man doing his labor is kind of, and being in control of his uh, production process, like eclipsed by, uh, the higher form of that. Where the where the sort of like artisan ethos of like controlling every step of the process is now done by the sort of demiurgos of capital 
that uses the former artisan to basically there's a there's an irony there integrated into Marx's argument where the real artisan now is capital. And so this is kind of the conundrum of the artisan, the petty bourgeois that, you know, is being dispossessed. And how, how this ties into, like, the family economy and all that. Yeah. Um, sort of coming back to Marx's point about, you know, abolishing the laws of a social system without getting rid of the system. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, even this has a kind of comic uh, element. Like, uh, yeah, what, what, he, what he's basically talking about is that, you know, Lasalle just is stuck in the the general concept of like labor and from that he deduces that you know the iron law operates on every like social formation and marx's criticism is that like no like what we know what we now know is like wage labor is vastly different from like not only feudalism but also like ancient societies and to to understand like Trying to understand how to overcome capital, you have to be situated in like how it operates, you know, in the historical setting. And you, you can't get to that when you talk about abstraction, like law, like laws, you know, that are so general that they don't really mean much. Right? At the very least, the laws would have to be internal to a system. And like, mm-hmm. I don't know, it'd be like abolishing the law of gravity without getting rid of electromagnetism. You know, to make a really like vulgar mm-hmm. kind of science analogy, Marxists love you know, Mar- Marxists love that shit. Like, um, but yeah, like, and, and, and also this is the all this is kind of like premised on um, a very like bourgeois view of like the like the necessity of labor that you know things that it's it's basically like the whole thing where you you get like a, a weird like. Austrian economists like talking about how well the the moment there was like uh, tools and like they were used uh, in a certain way that's capitalism so like you kind of end up having a a definition of like capitalism that just stretches back like I don't know it's just <laughs> it, it it just becomes like it's, yeah, it's, it's just always beca- existed yeah yeah it's basically meaningless so, like you might, it's like you've not gotten out of like the circle you're 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 just like eating your own tail. Well, yeah, and it it it, it generalizes it into something that is almost uh, you can't pin it down because it's just everything. Yeah, you might as well be declaring war on reality, which you know sometimes it really does feel like. And I think there's been some com- which, communizers that run with that, the, um, but yeah, maybe not like a healthy way and, to and, think of it. And this precisely, you know. This not only explains uh, utopianism, but also the sort of like anti-utopian, pragmatic, uh, liberal socialism that you get out of someone like Proudhon, where like instead of like revolting against you know what's perceived like a, the, an eternal like category or whatever, he just kind of like he tries to be at peace with it and accept like accept like basically like swallows like every. Um, presupposition of like the bourgeois society and then from there tries to work out the practical utopia <laughs> yeah that's something that connects like so many of it's, it's, this is something that connects like a lot of different um 
I don't know, pragmatists, let's say, from like, you know, the Marxian times that you're talking about, Tchaikovsky and Stalin, and even like, you know, some of the analytical Marxists I like reading, or uh, some of the, you know, opportunists that got it really into value form theory, or like, this is, I don't know, it, we, we're doomed to an eternal recurrence of this, <laughs> it seems. Um, and essentially, we just naturalize something that, uh, that, you know, if you're radical, you might want to abolish, but um, instead, it's actually just the sky. You can't abolish it. So. One thing with all those practical, like, quote-unquote utopians is that what they end up preaching as socialism is just like the development of capitalism, which, you know, if you look at, like, someone like Proudhon and, like, his whole, like, thing about banks and, like, you know, free credit and, like, and then you look at, like, today you kind of realize like what he was kind of grasping at even back then, back then it could have seemed like far-fetched, but like now it's sort of like, you can now see that what he was describing is just a further development of capitalism. But what Marx is trying to get at is, you know, what possibilities does capitalism give to like the proletariat to, get out of its uh, own like magic circle of equality and uh, fraternity and sort of like equal exchange of uh... quantity and equality, man. You just stack enough capitalism, you get a socialism. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, should we, uh, should we move on? Cause Mark says after all, but all this is not the main thing quite apart from the false LaSallian for formulation of the law. The truly outrageous retrogression consists in the following. Since LaSalle's death, there has asserted itself in our party the scientific understanding that wages are not what they appear to be, nearly, namely the value of labor with respect to its price, but only a masked form for the value of labor power with respect to its price, labor power. Thereby, the whole earlier bourgeois conception of wages, as well as all the earlier criticism directed against this conception, was thrown overboard once and for all. It was made clear that the wage worker has permission to work for his own subsistence, that is, to live, only insofar as he works for a certain time without pay for the capitalist, and hence also for the latter's co-consumers of surplus value that the whole capitalist system of production turns on the increase of this unpaid labor by extending the working day or by developing productivity, that is, increasing the intensity of labor power. That, consequently, the system of wage labor is a system of slavery, and indeed of a slavery that becomes proportionally more severe as the social productive forces of labor develop whether the payment the worker receives is better or worse. And after this understanding has gained more and more ground in our party, they return to LaSalle's dogma, although they must have known that LaSalle did not know what wages were, but following in the wake of the bourgeois economists, took the appearance for the essence of the matter. Um, now, among other things, I think Marx, Marx is sort of revealing his hand that he actually kind of does believe that there was like a scientific breakthrough with regards to value, labor power um, versus labor, um, and that 
Marx doesn't think it's how I put this. Sometimes people lean really hard into critique of political economy, um, and they either ignore or resent Marx's later formulations that imply that he actually did think he could do some kind of scientific um, view of economic activity, as long as you were keeping an eye on the soil and an eye on, on you know what human beings are actually doing, and etc. Um, but passages like these give truth to that. Like you know. He does think in some way all these other fools were, you know, just elaborating the ideology of capitalism where he can do real science. And that the party is, is retrogressing, more or less. They're like, they're taking on like, you know, theory of phlogiston or something instead of, you know, a modern theory of uh, wage labor. Uh, you know, they're, yeah. Well, and I mean, there was always, yeah, I mean, labor time or, or, you know, time has always been a factor in, in producing or doing anything because, you know, we have an understanding that we have finite lifespans. Right? Yeah, he he so. talks about he talks about it where like there are limits to capital and those limits are literally just the lifespan and just sort of like the sort of biological necessities of like humans because he, like capital might be like limitless and like but at the end of the day you're still dealing with like labor power those labor power is like they need to sleep eat and do a whole lot of other of other things depending on uh, the society you're in and you can't push the exploitation beyond a certain point because else People just start fucking dying. Like you, you just... <laughs> that's yeah. That's what I mean. That's what the autonomists get on is about how essentially the proletariat will shape the trajectory of capitalist development indirectly by defining the limits of what people will put up with. You know, because I mean, yeah, I mean, technically capitalism could, and for a period, in some cases, exceptional cases, they did like literally just chew people up and spit them out, and the factories are just these giant death machines that run on human blood. Uh, but because capital is something that is reproduced by humans and exists within a social context, people will only tolerate so much. And so it's going to set limits on it. Um, yeah. Which, yeah. 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 Which, you know, does tie into like um, one of his lines in the, in the working day chapter, if I remember is like between equal rights, force decides, which um, is interesting when you remember some of the things Sterner ends up saying about right and sort of like, you know, it's, I don't, th I don't think that's, that's like, like a coincidence that like, since, since like Marx's critique is basically like, Oh no, you can have perfectly equal exchange and like you can be paid for the full value of your labor and like capitalism still keeps running and exploitation is still happening. So it's because like, you know, your equal right is respected but also, like, are you really going to limit yourself to, like, that right and not, you know, go beyond that? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, it's it's clear, like, yeah, Sterner was tremendously influential, but the problem was all of this stuff existed within the realm of idealism. And so, you know, there's only so much you can accomplish by thinking about this stuff. Like, the you have to basically create, like, a practical union of egoists around a common interest in order to actually realize... Um, you know, in, in actuality, in these freedoms that Sterner talks about. But I was going to say, there's something interesting that he says, um, uh, that consequently, uh, the system of uh, wage labor is a system of slavery, and indeed of a slavery that becomes proportionally more severe as the social productive forces of labor develop. 
whether the payment receives the payment the worker receives is better or worse. And I think that that's an interesting and prescient observation and kind of one of the contradictions of existing in this period in the first world where, you know, we've basically seen over the last, whenever the divergence started, probably I think it was in the 1980s, I want to say, between uh, product time, uh, between uh, productivity and remuneration for American workers. You know, it's, I mean, it's it's astounding what we'll be making if if those two things were tracked and paired together. But it doesn't seem as bad as it is because the development of the productive forces and, and of the efficiency and machinery is so good, and that the volume of of goods produced has increased so much that even though within any uh, strict definition of exploitation it's it's skyrocketed, it doesn't seem as bad as it should. Yeah, this also ties into like you know the difference between absolute immiseration and relative immiseration, because to, to, yeah, so like the how to, how to it, this is actually very interesting because yesterday I was reading a text that kind of like uh, brings up the fact that like um, the anarchist like uh, Carlo Caffiero and his like compi- like his sort of like uh, compendium on capital, um, Marx has a criticism. Uh, uh, of it and it's very much um it's basically tied into the fact that I, th- I think like the author doesn't say it like that but i think it would be fair to say that like gaffiero basically think the absolute immiseration of uh the the workers is going to lead to revolution but like what what marx is getting at is more about um uh, the fact that like wage labor is the sort of like this perpetual like it's the point of being wage labor is a perpetual like point of contact with like all the categories of like a bourgeois capitalist society. The word proportionately is doing a lot of work there or proportionally, I should say, because like even, I don't know, even people that are firmly in skilled, like um, professional labor are getting fleeced if they're very valuable to their company. Now there are some people that are, you know, doing like, glorified guard labor, you know, who, you know, in these cl- semi-classical terms are not doing the value production and are more or less just getting paid off to secure the circuit. But, um, you know, m- more or less, like, if, if your concern is proportionality uh, and, you know, classical value theory and even its Marxist critique or Marxian critique, um, still has this like quality of being a lot more concerned with the uh the relative at, at a certain point than the absolute um you still very much should hate like the exploitation of these like professional yuppie fucks uh because these people that are make you know producing the value they don't get remunerated at nearly what they're actually contributing like at all right well people are mad at them for political reasons so, because they tend to support, they you know they tend to basically reinforce the things that they see themselves benefiting from, even if even if they themselves are getting massively fucked. Because it, again, it doesn't seem that bad. It's also just classic like wage shit. And just to go back to wages for one second, um, you know, what we were discussing about like whether people are going to put up with the bare minimum or you know fight for a social standard that really draws the line between LaSalle's Iron Law of Wages. And, you know, Marx's law of value, if you want to call it that, is that, you know, 
iron law of wages assumes some sort of biological like standard that's going to be set by the mode of production whereas marx's marx's law actually you know can account for when workers get like a big social premium because they fought for it and they're still getting exploited <laughs> it's still it's still operating and also and also he explains that how you can just you know be paid below the value of your labor and you know all that it's it's that you must it's kind of a very like marx marx's like conception of like you know labor power and like the subjectivity that's tied to it is very much trying to like integrate the sort of like creative nothing negativity bit that was like you know at the core of a lot of young hegelian discourse and he's very much um it would not make sense for him to like talk about like what when mark's talking about like the the law of value it's it's more to cognize what is happening in daily experience that it is to just be like oh that's how like society works so i have to keep the law and value of in mind whenever i'm do like you know doing any like political activism what what's basically telling you is that you can't like if the whole of marx's project was like you know the perfection of like bourgeois economics and sort of like a, a riffing on uh just sniff and ricardo and just making it better there wouldn't be space exactly for for him to just advocate that like workers should protest and then just you know take for themselves the products of uh take for themselves like the products of uh their, their, of capitalism as a whole and just be like no i i want this i need this this helps kind of like transcend this whole um the, the very opaque relation that wage labor actually is because the content of like wage labor is basically a sort of like not only a sort of fit like physical subservience but also sort of moral subservience to like whoever is employing you to to produce capital and, and and Marx obviously wants to ground like you know the sort of this protest be like no actually you should you shouldn't you shouldn't be like proud on advocating for, like shoot like striking workers <laughs> yeah and um yeah also like LaSalle kind of thought it was like useless to try to raise wages because you know there's the iron law of wages it's just going to go down to the biological minimum and like that's you know, I guess that's like a, a dynamic systems theory or something. I, 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 I guess I th it doesn't really hold up, but um, but you know, it's demonstrable that even when workers do that, uh, even when workers prove this out wrong, uh, make labor unions, uh, make shit happen, uh, raise the wages, um, and you know, maybe not being able to abolish this downward pressure, um, the law of value still. It's still like it still accounts for that downward pressure on wages, um, but it but it also 
it's a much more fundamental critique. It's not that like, oh, you can't get above that. That's what you need to live. You can't get above that. It's that even if you did, I'm repeating myself here, but you know, even if you did fight for more than you need to literally reproduce your physical self, um, you would still be exploited. Like the social system, like, like it, it, it can't work without that. Like there must be profit. It also just fundamentally misunderstands like capitalism as like an as a dynamic expansive system. Like LaSalle would be correct if there was a static level of goods production that was even say re relative to the growing population. Yes, if the worker if the workers did like get more and they had more purchasing power to get the same amount of goods, yeah, there probably would be inflation. But the system the value expands. Like the system by its very nature uh, reduces the necessary labor time and thus expands the amount of goods that are needed. So it, 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 it you know, it just, it, it, it just, it's just wrong. Yeah. And, uh, and also just going beyond, you know, an iron law of wages is also recognizing that uh, in a way that like labor, labor shouldn't like keep you like bounded. Um, how to put it? Demanding more than like the minimum for reproduction is also, Marx saying that, like, actually, no, workers are actually entitled to have uh, pleasures and, like, culture and have free time. And the assertion of being of, like, better wages and also for, like, better wages for for less time worked also, it's part of the, you know, the revolutionary subject appropriating for themselves uh, their lives. Because this whole system is is based on like structuring everybody's lives around like a very specific uh, system of like of of, val of valuing people not only in economic terms but also in moral terms because it reminds me of like uh, I, I use this a lot um, I read this in like a paper where it was basically explaining in a way that like the law of value is confirmed when it's denied by unemployment because person who's unemployed sees the value of labor <laughs> he sees it really fast right especially especially at a time like when there's no like no social welfare at all like la la labor really does it has the appearance of uh, creating all wealth and culture because else you end up basically sinking into the lump of proletarian like it's sort of like being made into like uh basically Basically, like, being denied labor is tied to, like, objectively in the capitalist system, like, a degradation of your, like, morality. But the degradation of your morality is because, like, you are cut off from your own life and, like... Yeah, it's, I guess, complicated with regards to, you know, whether the value is coming from the labor or not. When you get phenomenological like this, this is something that uh, sometimes neoclassical economists will appeal to, you know... Um, the non-reducibility of, of capital as a contributing element because without it, you just have this like worker that's unemployed. Uh, <laughs> and so you need the capitalists to extend their, you know, capital and, you know, get the risk. There's no risk, no reward. Um, and the instruments of production, what about their contribution? You know, so whenever you get phenomenological, like it's, uh, I guess, dodgy, but that's, this is at least like how, you know, it's received in the classical workers movement. Actually, it's it's very interesting that you mention uh, phenomenology like that because I had I read a paper recently that was 
actually kind of highlighted the fact that um, what Marx and Proudhon were probably like discussing in those long nights, uh, you know, about German philosophy and long steamy uh, nights of German and, and, philosophy and all that. Careless whisper yeah, plays and, in the background. Yeah, that it, that that uh, basically what they were actually kind of like discussing was maybe um, what, what one would call a feminology of value in a way. And this this kind of also accounts like why Proudhon thinks that like Marx is like ripping him off a bit. And what was, what was really interesting is that like um, Carl Carl Grun has um, wrote like an intro to like uh, Proudhon's like Marx definitely read where he's he basically um, well actually I can quote it here. All right, so this was written in eighteen forty seven. So quote what was tried in political economy before him i.e. proudhon deserves the name science by far less than even the philosophy before hegel it consists of an assemblage of unorganized facts some reflective determinations of these facts that are totally contradictory and incompatible let us order these testimonies let us complement one by the other and let us thereby help the econ- economy to achieve self-consciousness let's write a phenomenology of value so Apparently, Marx was pro- will probably have, re- have read that, and uh, one can get um, the impression that, like one of the reason like Marx is like so disappointed in Proudhon's uh, system of economic contradictions is there's no, it's all like kind of shand. There's not even like a semblance of like actual feminology, and s- this ties a bit into Marx's like whole like screed against Stirner and all that. This is like the meeting place where his like life project kind of like solidifies, because Marx himself says that like poverty of philosophy is like the germ of like the theory that's like in Capital, and in Capital he cites him he cites poverty of philosophy, especially in the the chapter on machinery, which is actually quite important. So, and this also does come up also against uh, Lasalle because for um for for Marx he kind of like realizes like. Lasalle is going to, in one of his books, uh, in Heraclitus, he kind of deduces, like, from a footnote of, like, Lasalle's going to present, like, a political economy in the manner of Hegel, and you can kind of tell that, like, Marx is, like, kind of exasperated and kind of recognizes, oh, no, he's doing the same thing Proudhon was doing that I criticized him for, and that I did way better than he ever could because I am not a dumb Frenchman, anti-Semite, uh-huh. or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it is, it is, I mean, it is interesting to think about capital as a phenomenology of value. Yeah, I, I even meant that more literally as like the phenomenology of like what the it's like to be a worker more than it is like, you know, thinking of capital as a subject, which is more of what Marx is doing, I guess. I mean, he, 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 do, he, he does that, but it's also kind of, I think it's also kind of a part of a... I wouldn't say rhetoricals. Yeah, I know what you mean. Me, 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 like he, what when he's saying that, like capital, like when he's like, I, this is actually kind of one of the points. Like Moshe Poisson kind of like he kind of gets tricked by some of Marx's uh, arguments and doesn't like kind of realize that like when Marx is uh, saying like capital is kind of like a self-moving subject, the point of that is to be like, isn't that fucking crazy? Like, how the fuck is this like? Has this actually happened? We should like kind of uh, do something about that, bro. This is yo. This is crazy. Because he's, this is crazy, bro. Like wow. Like it's it's kind of it's kind of like that. 
not like it's literally like this, but it's kind of like that. Yeah, and he like the whole point of Marx grounding, you know, the beginning of capital in the commodity form is the fact that like we're not literally commodities, but we have the proletarian that has like no property, nothing. All he has is his labor power, which is not commodified because of the historical process that like um, took away all the petty pro- propriety and uh, the land or whatever. So are bound to like the invisible thread of wage labor to survive because that's how you reproduce yourself. Um, there was another angle to this before I move on. It's just that like, you ever notice how like uh, Marx's actual understanding of capital is always the first thing to go like politically. It's like, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Don't worry about that. We don't fucking need that. Who gives a shit? Um, and Marx, Mar- yeah, because, and it, Marx cares look, so much uh, about this. Like, you know, maybe he thinks his theory of dictatorship of the proletariat is super important or whatever. But like, at the end of the day, this is what he was like busting his ass as like an old dude with shitty carbuncles that like swelling and bleeding. Like, like, and this is what is what he staked his like yeah, family's well being was... on. This is the thing they cared about the most. And you put up big posters of the guy and and like banners and march under his name and words and. As soon as it becomes slightly politically inconvenient, you chuck aside the one scientific thing he thought he did. Like, <laughs> well, that's hard. That's hard. To, it's hard to fix that. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's also it's also kind of um, like when Marx says that like the commodity has a dual character. It's also it's kind of, it's talking about you know the Hegelian problematic of like you know dialectical thinking can never be either. Uh, either or right it's it's not it the commodity isn't at one time just use value another time exchange no, it's value. an inclusive it or unity yeah, of, uh, it, yeah and it, it the, the the shifts of even like the metamorphosis of like capital is just like right it, it relies on all this and how to yeah and Marx's whole like kind of like system, if you can call it that, grounds the fact that like okay, capitalist society is based on immense co- accumulation of commodities, and oh, you later learn to like this accumulation of commodities includes uh, basically all proles or like people who like sell their sell themselves sell their yes. labor power. Their labor power. I, I do think there's like a bit of imprint of like Stirner's uh, whole deal because like I can just cite here like Stirner says that uh, for what is defined is thereby marked off and fixed in our thought as a determined concept. But the individual is made individual he it by an infinite of attributes. He is as it were the perpetual meeting place of concepts. He ke- we can neither exhaust what is to be said of him nor make a selection declared this is essential to him and that, and, and that unessential. Moreover, if we could, we would still only have settled in the fact what he is in fact, but a second person might also be, for every concept is universal. What makes him this individual and not another, we should not have defined, nor could we. And this is, this take kind of ties into how Marx ends up like defining like labor power and the fact that um, to, to overcome like wage labor is you have to like kind of um you have to act, like actively challenge just sort of like dualistic thought of like use and exchange 
like un- undoing a commodity form is kind of undoing um, the sort of a, a very s- simple sort of like almost like Kantian either either or logic that o- Hegel overcomes. And this is also something Cerner does because he kind of like against like Hess, he kind of refuses to be like, nope, I'm not I'm not submitting myself to like to the collective because it's just going to drown out my individuality for nothing. Yeah, and, and of course this goes into one's reading of Kant, but I guess it's disputable how much he is actually doing in either or, because on the one hand. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and this all ties into like the, tra- the sides of transcendental deduction where like he runs into like, you know, you know, the hard wall of like, what what is going on here? And Hegel's whole thing is to be like... Can't touch this. You, you hit a wall because of your of your own of your own like framework. And yeah, like yeah. So yeah, but yeah, th- th- like th- this, like this goes deep. So like when when people just vaunt Marx as a Hegelian, they're both right, but also they don't like don't understand that like what he's interested in Hegel is this. You know, it's kind of it's like re- it's it's ref- it's refusing these simple um, sort of like logical shortcuts that uh, bourgeois economy and empiricism offer because Hegel tells you to like sense certainty like eh, not too sure about that no I don't know I'm just sort of tempted to I'm still tempted to say like it's more of like an analogous thing that he's interested in Hegel and it's not like the thing Hegel cared about like the thing Hegel cared about Marx if anything is a little it's slightly like tips towards Kant in terms of like actual epistemology and critiques and that sort of stuff. Like slightly, like, but he doesn't want to have to proceed like Kant does when talking about social phenomena specifically. Like he would prefer to proceed like Hegel does, despite some of this epistemological. I don't even know if it's a disagreement or it's just like it's almost like he takes he takes a position it's, that's I, yeah, different I, than I'm, both of them. Like he doesn't endorse Hegel's position. Yeah, and this also this also like ties into like the whole debate of like is Marx misreading Hegel, and considering his Marx's like sort of reliance on Bauer, I would say that at least early on he probably does. I'm not sure. I think even like later on, I think is like thing is I'm I'm not sure if when Marx talks about like um, in the Postface, second edition of Capital, where he talks about like uh, he seems to like make Hegel out to be uh, to be like Plato on steroids or something. I'm I'm yeah I'm not too sure I agree I exactly agree, agree with that, but also I think the I think one of the points there uh, ties into this whole um, theme of like the artisan you know having full control of the labor process and then him being made into um an objective factor of the subjectivity of capital who is kind of an artisan using labor powers to fully control the process and all that yeah so anyways anyways i actually learned that like um bruno there was basically no actual study like full length study of bruno bauer until like 2002 <laughs> which is like huh because even after you know the infamous on the Jewish question by Marx, which is responding to Bauer, um, they st- they still um, in the later years, like eighteen fifties or something, like Marx did meet like Bauer and still like kind of uh, kept up with him a little bit. 
even though things had gotten a bit uh, tense, I guess. It's so fascinating to me that like Bauer is also like was acquainted with Nietzsche and like usually like Nietzsche said that uh, he used to be like one of his uh, most of his like early readership before like Nietzsche turns on him and just kind of makes fun of him too. Ah, good old ne- Nietzsche. Yeah, it all. An old favorite. Yeah, ba- ba- Bauer is basically like was like telling Nietzsche like you gotta make fun of like St- Strauss. You gotta make fun of Strauss. This is this fucking fraud. That's good advice, dude. That, like, saves his legacy. It prevents him from becoming Heidegger. Hey, I guess we can move on. We've only spent, dug a half hour in this fucking paragraph. I guess that whole chunk. Oh, it's, it's dense. Especially if you go into a whirlpool of the literary history behind it. Uh, so, let's see. Picking up where Marx did. It is as if among slaves who have finally gotten out from under the secret of slavery and broken out in rebellion, a slave still in the thrall to obsolete notions were to inscribe on the program of the rebellion. Slavery must be abolished because the feeding and lodging of slaves in the slavery system cannot surpass a certain low level. Does not the mere fact that the representatives of our party were capable of perpetrating such a monstrous attack on the understanding that is spread among the mass of our party proved by itself with what criminal levity and with what lack of conscience they set to work in drawing up this compromise program. And as we hear, just would like to expand that. <laughs> the monstrous attack of understanding oh, you have to keep in mind. Uh, proves the dispensability of the understanding, the criminal levity and lack of conscience they set to drawing up the compromise program is just, you know... He's talking about Liebnick here. Keep in mind, Liebnick is the one who, like, shows up at, like, the Unity Congress, like... But he could could be talking about almost any group of Marxists that draw... that say the program is the most important thing. Yeah. And then they spend all this... Like, they spend their lives, supposedly you know, preserving the flame of proletarian science. And as soon as they get to the moment where they could be hammering out, you know, the scientific program based on the proletarian class interest, they abandon their own notions of what makes of, of this science. Like, which, you know, on the one hand, if you saw this happening in any other branch of science, you would simply wonder if the theory is, you know, not, something that holds up to scrutiny and could be applied. But on the other hand, because this is a social theory with a reflexive component and it's about class interests and the people, you know, distilling the theory are not the the proletarians that of whom, of whose interests the whole thing is supposed to be. And you have to wonder, like, are they doing this because of the oh funny coincidence that we end up substituting our interests for yours? And that our program passes off our our interests for your interests, like that. So, like the fact that this happens over and over when a group of failed lawyers tries to, you know, scientifically derive from first principles, it's tantalizing. The question of does this fail for scientific reasons or because it's just blocked sociologically? Like, oh, could you do if if you gave this to robots, you know, like and gave them the instruction, like. And there are better robots than the ones we have now. Um, could they do this? Is this something that could be done? 
is the problem in the theory and it's, you know, in, in applicability or is it in the theorist and the applier? Like, it's just one of these, because on the one hand, it would be like really comfy for me to be like, well, I guess you just can't do it. All these people try to do it and you just can't. But once you get a thorough like sociological accounting of who these people are and what they do to their own, their own assumptions when they're applying, it makes you wonder if there's something in them that just won't apply it rather than can't. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. So uh, what I was thinking about is like Bakunin when he's like polemicizing against uh, German social democrats and being himself. Like, what one of the things, one of the greatest insults at the time was basically saying that someone is a journalist because it's like a notion of like a failed academic or like a hanger on or almost like being like bring that back. In my opinion, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like when Marx talks about like what is the uh, what is the kind of um, Lumpen, he does include like the uh, that kind of class. Yeah, he, he, uh, uh, don't forget the organ grinders. Enough, don't forget so, the organ grinders. Which, which, I'm, look, I'm looking at you, yeah, organ grinders. Yeah. The Lumpen. Yeah, and um, this does like suggest, well, this ties into a whole other thing, but like me kind of like wondering if like uh, sort of like the sort of moral component, the Nazi moral component of like uh, Marx's analysis of uh, Lumpen and also, you know, the quality of being Lumpen also um, not only to the bottom layer of society, but like the highest layer of society dialectically. How this ties into the whole... Well, certainly biochemically, yes. Yeah, but like the... But also how this ties into like the whole um, the sort of Jungian notions of like uh, egoism and sort of like, you know... What what like Moses Hester says about like money and uh, huh? Also like Feuerbach. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I've like, heard this know, one like, before because I was just making a joke that they're the highest like layer of society. But what? So you mean in terms of like egoism, the lumpen are the highest because they recognize their own uh, interests, or or how do you mean this? Um, I'm I'm uh, what I mean is um, for example this this is like kind of like speculation or just sort of like because when you read about like people like talking about like the lumpen proletariat and Marx and Engels and trying to like understand you know why they're so vague or sort of like all over the place sometimes about what they mean also like the changes of like oh does the later Marx, Marx have a different theory where he sort of like nuances his things what I mean is for example when you look at like Stirner's whole deal he the dialectic stops at the at, like at his ego, right? And when one of the things that Marx says about the Lumpen is, you know, they're not integrated integrated to the dialectic. And he defines he starts elaborating on on not only separating the Lumpen proletariat, which was like assimilated with the proletariat at the time, but also his separation of the Lumpen with the the proletariat proper is done. Because of his confrontation with Stirner, who kind of seems to just vaunt the qualities that you would associate with, like, the lump in of just, you know, self-interest. And the self-interest can lead to just being the bribe tool of the reactionary intrigue. Fair point. But he also ties it, he, ta- he, ties the, he ties it into the aristocracy of money. And then when you know a bit of, like, Moses Hess or just where he gets this from, where you get, like, Apparently, he got it from Chaukowski of uh, Praxis, uh, of Praxis fame, of you know elaborating that, 
And apparently, uh, Proudhon read um, two very, um, not very widely read works by Tchaikovsky on like credit and money, whatever. When you look at like, you know, for example, Hess's uh, text on like the essence of money, which Marx had read, whatever. Money is, you know, it is tied to like, is the highest point of like egoism is as you know it's abstract there's all that so I, I i i i do get the impression that what marx means by the lumpen and the moral quality that's like attached to it and sort of like the of course because because like the lumpen are sort of such a, a sort of like like vague social class where you, you just find so many like different layers of society right where you can just find like you know the sort of like opportunist, um, educated, like sort of a scholar that's like kind of a mercenary for whatever you can find uh, facts. I, I really have it out for the organ grinders. You can, you can, you can, you can, you can, you can, you, yeah, you can, you, you can also find you know the starch soldiers, which interesting to note, you know, thinking about what happened uh, with the mm-hmm. free corps. Okay, and, uh, so this is like a. This, this, it's an interesting soft defense here. And, and what do you make that. of prostitutes, quote unquote, right, and pimps being in there? That that that, that always oh, like yeah. mm-hmm. you know flips. But like I think it's strange oh, yeah. that, to in- include that's just, uh, you know so an employer oh, yeah, yeah, there's, and there's, an employee in the same boat. There, that's always something that like gets me. Yeah, which yeah, which kind of this is where I've kind of reached where like. I do think that, like, in Capital, he has a much subtler notion of, like, the the lumpen, but also he distinguishes it from, like, surplus population. But in, like, in the Brumaire, it's very clear that he's still hung over, like, he's hung up on, like, notions that he got from, like, Hess. From, like, 4chan. From socialism, but also... I'm kidding. Who do, you mean, think, who do you think runs 4chan? Kind of? It's the organ grinders. Anyway, sorry. You were saying. But yeah, so this whole, like, the whole notion, there is this, this sort of, like, you, 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 you can tell, that, like, his differentiation of the Olympic proletariat from the proletariat is kind of based on this, like, on a moral, like, quality. And it's not just, like, lower layer society. It's also the higher layers. And it's all bound to, like, a sort of, like, very anti-dialectical, like, very just totally inward looking egoism, whatever that means. <clears throat> Which I don't know what to make of that, but I'll have to like I have to like kind of like study uh sort of like differences and how he evolves. Because I get the impression that the the more he studied economics, the more he kind of realized that like, yeah, the sort of the like he doesn't ab- abandon he doesn't abandon like the notion of like parasitism and sort of like, you know, this sort of moral revulsion at like, at like credit and interest, but he also kind of like realizes, recognizes within the system, like within the system that like, it won't get you anywhere to just like be focused on that. Like the the like, the point of like the the lump and pull Harriet is that they are. It's what he talks about at the beginning of the uh, of this text, right? That you're only allowed to to live when you're given permission to work. So when you cut off, uh, cut off from that and also cut off from that because, you know, criminality or just, you know, the pol- policing of the state, it, it does create, it, it does like create a sort of like reserve army 
that the that reaction can use in a way. Yeah, so I mean, I I, I do kind of understand at this point why some people get hung up on that, but uh... and and this this also does tie into the denunciation of like the one reactionary mass slogan. Yeah, kind of because it sort of reconstructs it a little bit. <laughs> like this is the reactionary mass. Like yeah, which actually is interesting because I've read like. When people are talking about like the 18th Brumaire, they kind of talk about how Marx is like kind of con- constructing a proletariat to dis- to like distinguish it from like what could be like almost like conservative uh, Burkean like uh, takes on like the French Revolution and like the rabble, which also pops up in uh, in he- Hegel. But yeah, this simply to say that later Marx seems to have. Uh, much subtler notion of like what the revolutionary subject can be and really does depend on like being bound by wage labor like the situation like if you're just gonna let if you're just gonna let the lump in you know you're just gonna keep away be like oh reactionary mass hopeless whatever of course the reaction are just gonna sweep in and yeah and i mean especially when they're the majority of the proletariat i don't know i could get i could i could talk for hours on this like uh we should probably get back to the uh, situation at hand. I don't know. It, it makes me. Th- I mean, I'd have to re to weigh on this like confidently. I'd have to re-examine and freshen up on um, Sturter's categories because his notion of what egoism is is like very esoteric, and his notion of like ownness is also like very specific. Yeah. Um, and so it, you can't. I mean, you can't really like map Sturner's understanding of this stuff onto like notions of selfishness in yeah, a it's, it, way. It's, yeah. But, but particularly because if you get to the end of his philosophy it you know it basically becomes clear like, like it, some of this dialogue made me think there's there's a japanese director named kinji fukasaku and in the 1960s he made some a series of movies that mostly had the same plot uh, it wasn't a direct series but it was a recurring theme in his work of basically a gangster who gets out of prison and then proceeds to more or less do whatever he wants and refuses to starts up his own outfit, refuses to kowtow to any other Yakuza boss or anybody um, doesn't observe any of the the normative rules of the system of Yakuza criminality in Japan. And it would usually end with him getting killed. (laughs) Um, So Scarface. Yeah, it, it was Scarface before Scarface. Um, and it kind of goes to show the lumpen proletariat aren't this purely self-asserting, egotistical, in this, even in the sterner sense, subject, because they are inevitably going to run into the indirect limits that are set by, one, the social codes and so forth that exist within even the criminal underworld, but also the limits of maybe they don't aren't directly engaged in the circuit of uh, capital V value production, but they're still dependent on that from the outside because Mm -hmm. that's what they operate in and around. Yeah. I guess like a perspective from evolutionary theory is that look like parasitism is the name of the game in capitalism. Like, like it's it is not like a symbiotic relationship that it seems like um if you look at 
basically what Marx is saying about the theory of labor power is that something that appears to be a free and fair contract and it's like a sort of a form of symbiosis is actually a zero-sum game and it is a form of parasitism. So, like, if, 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 um, if, you know, the lumpen are pursuing a parasitic, uh, parasitic survival strategy, then they're, you know, in good company in capitalism. Well, Marx does describe, like, the state as, like, a parasitic entity upon... Like, so we're talking you know, parasites society. upon parasites upon parasites, so, and it the, brings to mind Einstein's formulation of socialism as the, in the foreclosure of the predatory phase of civilization, so to speak. Um, and, and so survival, the human survival strategies would be therefore limited, like a predation would be outlawed essentially, you know, uh, so to speak, sorry, sorry for the legal language as a survival strategy in terms of it. So, yeah. I mean, what, what I see a lot of Marx's injunctions here about the compromise program and these specific categories is, I think he's a little disappointed at how difficult it is for people to conceptualize a society beyond wage labor because you know wage labor was not the driving force that behind any previous mode of human civilization it was a part of it there were wages like they they existed having all of exchange having the majority of um, exchanges taking place between people being calculated upon the these very narrow calculations of labor time that's re- that's realized through exchange that's not that it's not integral to species being or anything and any like emancipatory proletarian project should be able to very easily see beyond that and maybe conceptualize something beyond that maybe not in the exact specifics of how it would work although that is a you know histor- history has proven that that's kind of important to have some kind of uh, on-the-ground plan ready to go in terms of what you change. Um, but th- throwing that stuff overboard because simply because it's hard to imagine immediately how you would go about doing that. And I think there should a little credit should be given. In the 20th century, there were some good reasons why some of this stuff ended up getting thrown overboard because of the phase of nationalisms, industrial warfare, the atom bomb, and so forth have created these situations where, in this very immediate sense, uh, maybe doing something that would be less productive, basically sacrificing a higher state of like capitalist productivity through this extreme optimization by rationalizing and and tightly disciplining labor that was disadvantaged to any particular disadvantage disadvantageous potentially to the survival of any particular nationality where a socialist party or communist party actually got power you know um and so i don't know what the answer to any of that is (laughs) but uh i think at some level it wasn't i mean Starting off on a bad foot theoretically is obviously not a good thing, and, and they bore the fruits of that. But there were also other problems beyond that, um, as well. There were also there were there were operational constraints taking place um, that perhaps could have been addressed better with a better uh, value theoretical framework underpinning it. Um, 
and you might not have necessarily reverted to these sometimes even you know, reactionary uh, methods or these very brutalist, like brute force methods of overcoming these particular uh, resource constraints or what have you. Um, but yeah, it's, I, it's just, I, I, I do like to pay attention. It is important to. Oh yeah, for sure. But my error theory here is that they respond to these constraints in a way that's like, that secretly leaves a role for themselves in a way that, listen, it might've been addressed by like the fundamental principles of communist production distribution. That book, you know, in a sense is like trying to square the circle and lay out some kind of decision-making method that would essentially be doing away with the theorist and the bureaucrat and whatever. But for the most part, when they're seeing, you know, the beginnings of the welfare state and the war economy, they are, they, they, they are working with their operational constraints. Uh, and, you know, when they start preferring national armies, professional uh, militaries to, you know, workers, militias and shit like that. Yeah, of course they're doing, they're working with operational constraints, but their, their decision-making then then leaves like, and then I have a spot as professional coordinator. Like, and that, that's just a suspicious thing to happen over and over again. And now it really could be, and this is, you know, the big black pill might be that, look, you just can't have a mass class of society because coordination requires um, professionalized, specialized coordinators. Um, and you can't have a mass society without this. And so, you know, good luck with that. And good luck with your big stupid dream. Of a, of a big old classless society. You got to pick one. Um, or on the other hand, you know, it could be just the type of, the type of reasoning that gets you to one of these positions will not allow you to make, you know, allow you to hit the communism button, so to speak. Like that's not the kind of, that's not the kind of thing you're going to decide on. And it means, it just means ejecting the fundamental critique of political economy it's the first thing to go. It's the first. It's. <laughs> oh yeah, but but and also like uh, like it's it's important to like remember like it does sort of like remind me a lot of uh, Marx's like objection to whiteling is basically like ignorance has never helped anyone and like the pro the program is supposed to be you're not supposed to find ignorance in the program it's supposed to be very fucking clear you're supposed to like. Right, which is why Marx is like, you know, blowing a fuse over this. Like, what the fuck? Like, I have like fought for like decades against this exact con conception. You're just gonna like put it under my name? What the fuck? I, look, it simultaneously like uh. isn't that super clear on the one hand. It it is kind of a difficult subject. Even if Marx will sometimes write very clearly about it, and you know, went to great lengths to try to like get people to understand this. Then on the other hand, you have people whose job it is to make sense of it, and they just butcher it. Like, and it, those people could have helped. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll, I mean, they could have helped, but in a way, like, it's kind of hard for them to really get where, where Marx is getting at because none of them have been like, it's it's this dichotomy where like Marx writes this whole fucking tome where like he cites. Greek in the original without providing a fucking translation initially. And then he's like, 
well, I want to publicize publicize this. Like, I want to make this digestible for workers because they're the ones who are going to understand what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> Which is like, you know, it's a dilemma of like bong rip intellectual trying to just, I don't know. It's because like even like the Communist Manifesto, they kind of like realize there's going to be like a sub layer of like, you know, the bourgeois who are just going to join up to the proletariat. But they're very kind of clear that like those those intellectuals have a responsibility towards the proletariat. Practically, all it becomes is like, you know, you get like you just end up like getting like uh, Ebert and Nosk basically out of that. And you know, Ebert and Nosk like the Nosk like I think Nosk like basically brags that, like he hadn't he had no fucking idea who Marx was until like way later <laughs> so like he, he basically like ran a fucking newspaper like social democratic newspaper without like knowing really much about Marx at all and you know Ebert knows like you know they, they grind it to the top you know it's, an inspiring it's story of, uh, yeah uh, don't let don't let your lack of knowledge curiosity and you know don't let that stop you people you, you just keep grinding you just keep grinding until you're the the cats give your time. Like, um, we should, you know, as Ebert, as Ebert said, like you know, you gotta hate the revolution like sin because <laughs> socialism actually means working a lot. So. Oh, I absolutely. He literally said that. By well, the he way, got, he got to be president. Literally so he literally said to be, like, that. Uh, <laughs> or chancellor, or whatever. I don't know what it is. Anyway, um, we should finish out the the. We just finish out this section because we we almost got through like two like <laughs> one whole page like we almost got yeah. through it. This was dense, I guess. And, oh my you know, god! We're feeling, yeah. we're feeling we're vibing on the bong rep way. I got I've, I've been smoking CBD weed and listen, I know I know what there's no THC in it. But listen, if you haven't smoked weed for a whole month, like CBD weed does the job real good. Um. Oh me 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 I've just been you know. I got a nice uh, bottle of uh, scotch for my birthday, and yeah. And I fin- fin- finished it out. I did not finish the party package entirely. Let's see. So I, I think I think we have... Um, let's talk about a party program. Um, I think we have this one paragraph left. Instead of the indefinite concluding phrase of the paragraph, the elimination of all social and political inequality, it ought to have said that with the abolition of class distinctions, all social and political inequality arising from them would disappear of itself. And I believe this is, that's it, right? That's it for section two. Yeah, which is, here Here, Marx is basically uh, saying that, like, you know, to each according to his ability, to each according to his need, in, like, it, it implies there's, like, a natural, like, distinction between peoples, but, like, yeah, no, I, I guess I guess I just find it super interesting that he doesn't actually consider the abolition of class distinctions to be the elimination of social and of, of social inequality. Because like I feel like class distinction I when I say egalitarian or something, that's the thing I most mean, you know, a lot of time. And and in his mind, inequalities are something downstream from class distinction. Like and that, that's just like a rhetorical kind of like conceptual point, I suppose. You know, if you're really like, if you're really nominalistically locked into 
Well, no. In a, social inequality refers to this. We're not talking about, like, class distinction. Like, I don't know. It's just, it bends my mind out of shape. Basically, also, what he's saying here is that, you know, instead of, like, socialism being, like, a sort of millennarian, just, you know, leveling out, it's mostly about the leveling out that would happen when you abolish class distinctions, but it sort of makes sense in the sense like one of, uh, you know, Hegel's critique of like the French revolution is sort of like, you know, the sort of like egalitarian rationality relating to terror. And Marx does seem to integrate that into, into his conception to be like, yeah, the sort of like crude communist sort of like white playing sort of thing isn't just gonna flip it's like it isn't right and so the only way to get all these everything all these fucking harpies and you know queers care about like you know the, the thing all the, all the things that they care about it would just kind of be it would just happen downstream of taking out class distinction and it's just it's just a funny move to me He's like, I'm not one of these egalitarians, you know, I'm not, I just think we need to eliminate class distinction. Like, I don't know. I feel like we entertain this because you, you can't really understand Marx without understanding I, I think that he, he thinks also, this way, right? About himself. But also, uh, it's just, I don't know, like... Look, it, there's, there's definitely problematic aspects of where that comes from, but also it does tie into like him valuing individuality and being like he mostly wants to it, for him it seems that a lot of like what socialism is going to be about is like undoing the sort of like artificial fe feathers on like you know self-consciousness and just letting uh people find themselves more clearly without just being completely like, yeah, and, yeah. and also it does tie into like his whole uh, you know schoolmaster fixation on like, ancient ancient Greece and Rome the polis and just being like you know things you know the ancient being brought back in a higher form and just being like yeah like the Greek polis had some things going for it that was like correct it's like you know, it'd be, it'd be nice to like to 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 go back to some of uh, some of the things they did get right, even at like the sort of like infancy of uh, of humanity or something of like you know. Consciousness I don't know if that's that. like a great example of how the abolition of class distinction brings about social and political equality or or something. But no, I I I kind of know what you mean. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I always get fixated on this. Marx is an egalitarian who does not want to be, which I vibe with actually, because you you know you look at I don't know it's it's a classic like utopian kind of critique. Like you don't you don't want to be a you don't want to be a fucking fanatic. Well, yeah. You, well, he wants a union of egoists. He wants like a bunch of like incommensurate qualities that sort of come together. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, he doesn't uh -huh, want to be yeah, a collectivist yeah. fanatic where you subsume yourself into the fight for egalitarianism because you don't want to exist. Right. You want to basically yeah. create the social preconditions for everyone to basically develop themselves. And also, you know, a situation where uh, people's, like, differentiating, abili differentiating abilities and incommensurate qualities can be combined, 
you know, in a pro-social and helpful way, and not one where it, yeah, everybody has to fit into the particular mm-hmm. like shaped hole that uh, society yeah. cuts out for everybody. Even in like 1848, you just find like it is like sort of like you know the the temp the way they get in trouble. Marx and Engels get in trouble is like those, uh, you know, the infamous like ten plank, you know, program that like later. They, yeah, you know, we were guilty yeah, of defending that one. Right, so don't, don't don't put don't put any specifics. Yeah, yeah, but like it, it, in there, right? There's like there's the obvious like um, when they talk about like equality of wages, they they also make sure to be like, oh, by the way, of course, if you're if you have a fucking family, you're not going to be played like equal wages because we're going to factor in the fact you know you have kids and so the labor that you're doing right it's tied into the whole bunch of things so the point is is that if we work together even as like you know in individuals will have enough for everybody to, to 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 get their share and also to just have uh, free time to just be that you know learn to just you know as basic as it is to just like be able to like introspect and just think and just you know partake in so in social wealth that's culture and all that. that's it for this time thanks again to Constance for joining us and uh, yeah we got two or three more of these to go and then we'll be done with this series and we should be finally looking at Sterner with a lot more context than than we would have had before so that's going to be exciting also look for our audio only let's plays of Disco Elysium we've been playing it and just uploading VODs to the Patreon, but we're going to have a more tightly edited audio-only version of the game playthrough uh, coming forward soon on the main feed, I believe. And, uh, yeah, that's it. So, until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.